If you have your Bible this morning, please turn with me to the book of Jonah, little book of Jonah, chapter 2. And if you uh, do not have one, uh, you can find the book of Jonah, specifically chapter 2, on page 774 of the Pew Bible. So we're making our way. This is the second, second sermon from the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is in the, almost in the middle of what we often call the minor prophets, sometimes called the book of the Twelve. And it is um, arguably the oddest of the minor prophets uh, for, for several reasons. First, for its content. And then also, if you notice, in most translations of the Bible, Anyway, you'll notice the, the way the print is looks different, at least in chapters 1, 3, and 4 of the book of Jonah than often in the Minor Prophets. And that is because there's more prose, which you call prose, just regular speech than poetry. And in most of the Minor Prophets, we see uh, poetry. So in other words, there's a lot of story in Jonah, but chapter 2 is an exception to that. Chapter 2 is, is poetic, so we'll see that more about that in just a moment. So I'll be reading Jonah chapter 2, uh, the whole thing, verses 1 through 10, beginning with verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So last week, when we looked at the beginning of the book of Jonah, the first chapter, we uh, saw several things. If you're like me, uh, perhaps you have heard the story of Jonah before, and it sounds a little bit, as Aaron mentioned last week, sounds like a... Um, a, a children's story. Um, sounds in some ways maybe a little bit like the, the realm of, of a fairy tale, which I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but I thought one of the, one of the, the great things Aaron did last week is pointing out how if you, take this, if you take this book, if you take chapter one seriously, if you take chapter two seriously, um, there are a lot of very adult themes in this book, and I often Sometimes in the Bible, I'll think, if this were a movie, what would it be rated? And this would certainly not be a G rating. Uh, most likely not a PG rating as well. Disturbing images, uh, certainly, are throughout this, whether it's the city of Nineveh or this giant sea creature that we see at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, it's not a, again, it's not a cute book. 
It's not a light book. Uh, it's, it's heavy. And there's a lot of death here, at least looking between the lines. There's some despair in this book, and there's some resentment as we move in toward the, toward the end of the book as well. When we get to chapter 2, we see it's primarily, I think as I mentioned before, it's primarily a prayer. And this is certainly the most bizarre place I think that anyone could pray from, uh, not only in Scripture, but just, just period, uh, out of the, the belly of this sea creature. And I think there's, a, there's an issue. It's, it's certainly a sermon is not a place to go in, in deep detail, but there is an issue here that we, we gather together to worship the living God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. And we're, we're reading an ancient text that talks about a fish or some other sea creature swallowing a human being and then vomiting that human being up. And uh, for, for those not familiar with this story, this certainly can seem um, like a, a fairy tale. You can, you can see this in popular culture. Just a couple of months ago, uh, this is one of those things where Matt had asked me to preach this text a while back. And so when I saw this story in the news, it was, it was like a red light in my mind. But a couple of months ago, there was a guy who was a, a lobster diver off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And so a lobster diver is someone, I learned this uh, recently, who, who goes down to the bottom of the ocean and picks up lobsters with his bare hands as he's diving and puts them and brings them up. That's a, that's a manly vocation if there was one. <laughs> Um, anyway, there was a lobster diver and he's doing the lobster thing, you know, he's getting things and all of a sudden everything goes dark for him and he, he's enclosed in this space and he realized that he's, he's just gone inside the mouth of a humpback whale and he kicked and he fought his way or he, he made life as uncomfortable as possible for the, the humpback whale. And finally, he said it was about 30 to 40 seconds later, it spit him out uh, at the surface. And he had to go to the hospital for some, some bruising. He thought his leg was broken, but it, it wasn't. Um, and and as, I was, uh, as I was looking at that, and uh, I was watching this interview with him. And I had to do this when my family wasn't home because they would have said, sure, Dad, you're watching a Jimmy Kimmel live interview preparing for a sermon. Right, that's, that's, that's how you prepare for sermons, right? Uh, and, and, and they were the serious side of the interview was, well, do you know anybody who's been swallowed by a whale before? Has this ever happened before outside the Bible? And there's kind of a disdain like, well, that's kind of a fairy tale that's a myth but in reality you know has this ever happened before and so I think there we need to address things like that um, it, as, as we think through this um, and the first thing for, for for those you maybe you're unfamiliar with the story and we read this we talk about this and you're thinking that's absolutely crazy uh, how how can people who take scripture seriously how can we take a story like this seriously well First of all, it helps um, just assuming, assuming that we know all of the creatures in the sea that were around 2,700 years ago, uh, and assuming that it is physically impossible, as most scientists would say today, to be, uh, to be swallowed by a sea creature and survive for, for three days. Assuming those things for, uh, are, are true, um, as Christians, we always begin with Christ and who Jesus is. 
Uh, that's the, the central message of Scripture, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come for us to save us. He's died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And if, and if it's possible for the Son of God to genuinely die and stay dead for three days and return from death, then it is possible for a human being to remain inside of some sea creature for three days and to be vomited out. So in other words, when, you, when, when you're, we're talking about, talking about God um, communicating as well, a, a, an all-powerful, uh, eternal God communicating to a prophet words that he wants uh, people within time to hear, if that's possible as well, then this is also possible. Another, another issue to, to think through is that when we read Scripture, there's not a fairy under every bush, so to speak. This is not a, a land of fairy tales. And you read the rest of Jonah, there are some very realistic things going on here. And so, again, if we take Christ seriously, uh, if we take God seriously and his ability to communicate, his ability to work miracles, uh, then we can, we can take this story seriously as well. It's also important to be aware of how much we don't know. Um, the translation here in the, the English Standard Version calls uh, this a great fish or a fish using the same word um, in other places of Scripture in terms of what we would call fish. But, uh, but there's a lot of disagreement about what that means. When the Bible talks about a fish, it doesn't mean something that has scales and gills and things like that. It's just referring to something that lives in the sea. And so that's why translations have, have uh, varied about what to translate this word. Uh, the, the Latin translation calls it a, basically a great fish. The Greek calls it a sea monster. And that's what the Lord seems to refer to in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, which we'll get into in just a little while. Um, the earliest English translation of the Bible calls it a whale, the uh, Wycliffe's translation. And later one, later one's translated a, 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 as a fish. So there's disagreement here. Um, we, we just don't know exactly what this sea creature was. So I'm, I'll call it a fish sometimes because that's what the translation says. Uh, but I heard this story enough as a kid to also, it, whale is going to come out uh, in this sermon. That's just, it's just stuck in there. Um, now, as we, as we think about this passage as well, um, it's also, it also helps if we see that there's very little reference to swimming in the Bible. You know, my, as, I, as I read this story in chapter one, you know, we're just, I don't know about you, but our family watched the Olympics a little bit. And, um, you know, when, when Jonah is thrown out of the boat, you know, you thought maybe, well, maybe there's an island nearby or maybe he can hold on to a, 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 some type of raft or something like that. But it doesn't appear in Scripture anyway that swimming was, uh, was a, a widely known skill, especially for the Hebrew um, or, or the Israelite as well. And so, we, and as we see in this prayer, when Jonah was thrown overboard, for him, and Aaron mentioned this last week as well, for him, that was it. I mean, that was death. To go into the sea, into the deep, uh, was the end of his life, at least from a human standpoint. And so what you see as he's praying in the belly of the sea creature, uh, he, is, he sees this experience as God's salvation from death. 
And so there's a sense as we as we read it, it seems uh, it seems maybe out of touch or jarring that he's he's excited about being saved within the belly of this sea creature. Uh, but this was an instrument for him of God's salvation. Uh, Part of the reason I think that the scripture uses the word fish here is because that's one of the divisions of God's creation in Genesis chapter one. He created the birds. He created the, the um, beast on the land. He created the fish. And just as the storm was obedient to God's word and commanding that storm to come because of the disobedience of Jonah, just as that part of creation was obedient to the Lord, so also was this fish uh, obedient to God's command, he appointed this fish to uh, consume and save Jonah. And then he also appointed this fish. He called this fish, commanded this fish to spit Jonah out on dry, on dry land. And the fish was more obedient than Jonah was as well. So what is it we learn as we read this text? Um, first of all, uh, I'm going to tell you what, what it appears that we should respond to this text and then the main thing that we'll look at is why should we respond this way? We see three different ways to respond to this text. The first um, and perhaps most obvious way to respond to this text is through prayer. Jonah has been saved. He's been rescued, or we might say he's in the process as well of being rescued. And his response to being saved is to pray. Verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So his response to that salvation is prayer. The second thing that we see, and this really bleeds into the first, is worship. Scripture calls this passage a prayer. But as you read through this, it is as much worship as prayer. It's exalting God for what he's done. So as we take this passage of Scripture seriously, God's calling us to pray. He's calling us to worship. And then thirdly, we see in terms of our response here, that is one, it is one of commitment as well. And we see this specifically in verse 9, where Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. In other words, the sacrifice is a sign of his commitment to God. What I have vowed, I will pay. And this would have been something like, as he's reflecting on God's deliverance of him, he makes some sort of promise to God, and he realizes his obligation to fulfill that promise, most likely in sacrifice as well. For us, that commitment is going to take many forms. The commitment to worship him, the commitment um, to offer ourselves our bodies specifically, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And that is our spiritual act of worship as well. So all three of those things, um, they, they bleed into each other. Prayer, worship, commitment. And we see that in Jonah. Now let's look at why we're, call, we're called to pray. Why we're called to worship. Why we're called to commit ourselves to the Lord. First reason we see in this passage is that the Lord is a God who hears the distressed and dying. God, the Lord that is, is a God who hears the distressed and dying. Jonah says in verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, out of his tribulation, out of, out of something that for him was literally constraining him. 
constraining his life. We see this theme throughout Scripture, specifically in the Psalms. This, this uh, verse, is, uh, I'll mention this through the, uh, throughout the passage, but so many of these verses sound so similar to so many of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 5 says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Psalm 120, just two chapters later. Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord and He answered me. There's a theme throughout Scripture that those who are distressed, those who are in tribulation, those who are in trials and dangers, in difficulty, can call out to the Lord and take confidence that God hears them in the midst of their distress. Now, what was Jonah's specific distress it was again as i mentioned earlier it was his impending death um jonah jonah assumed that he was going to die um and jonah also as aaron pointed out last week as well jonah knew that he deserved to die jonah was a prophet but we see a very very clear narrative a very clear story of his rebellion against God. Very, um, very decidedly rebellious. God said, you go this way, and Jonah went that way. And this, is not, this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing either. You know, sometimes, sometimes we make spur-of-the-moment decisions and we think, why, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I not tell the truth in that moment? Uh, for Jonah, he had to purchase his fare. You know, he, he had to make a series of decisions defying the Lord. And he assumed, we see as he was being thrown into the deep, thrown into the sea, that death was the just response. And yet he called, he called to the Lord. Um, we see also an emphasis on death at the second half of chapter 2. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol in the Old Testament is the realm of the dead. Translated in the New Testament often as Hades. Yet in the realm of the dead, in the belly, he doesn't say in the belly of the fish, he says in the belly of Sheol, in the belly of the realm of the dead. I was, I was there, and yet God heard his voice. Um, we see later on uh, an emphasis through here on, on death as the, the billows um, are, are hitting him. Uh, verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Again, middle of verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It was part of the image of, of death that there were bars and you could not escape death. He said the bars were closed in on me forever. So it was distress. It was death. Um, we see... Uh, we see also, as I mentioned um, before, that for him, God was behind the death sentence. It wasn't an accidental death. We see God's sovereignty in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. There's no denial of God being sovereign here. I deserve death. I was headed toward death. God was doing this. Um, but as we think about Jonah's experience and what that means for our lives today, a lot of the images as I've mentioned before in this passage, are images that we see metaphorically in other places in Scripture. So what I read just a moment ago in verse 3, the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows at the end of verse 3 passed over me. You see that also in Psalm chapter 42, where in verse 5, the psalmist says, 
Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Later on in verse 7, it says, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. So it's the image of being under a waterfall. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Now in Psalm chapter 42, it's, it's metaphorical. Uh, as, I, as I read that, I think of uh, times uh, when I was a very young kid and we used, to go, we used to go to Myrtle Beach and my parents always made me wear a life jacket when I was very little and, and I have these memories of what seemed like giant waves crashing in, knocking me over and because I had my life jacket on, the wave would just carry me all the way to the, to the shore. A uh, very helpless sense in, in what the the psalmist is saying there in, in Psalm chapter 42 is what he was feeling was that God's waves were crashing over him and, and, and he had lost all sense of self-control. Jonah experienced that as well. And the fact that those two images go hand in hand means there's a right, uh, right response and a wrong response to this passage. The wrong response to this passage is, okay, when I find myself within the digestive tract, of a sea creature, I will know what type of prayer to pray. The right response would be, okay, I may not be in Jonah's exact circumstance, but I feel like that. I feel like everything's out of control. I feel like my life is crumbling. I feel like impending death is in front of me. And yet we can take confidence that God hears our prayers, even, even when we are experiencing what we deserve. Jonah took confidence that God heard his prayer. Uh, so in other words, this prayer is, is for the despondent. It's for the hopeless. We can be hopeless for all kinds of reasons. We can feel despair for all kinds of reasons. It could be literal impending death that we, we feel. It, that can bring about hopelessness. It could be the impending death of a loved one, literal again. It could be a, a failed relationship, a failed marriage, a shattered career, an addiction, uh, a, a, an estrangement that lasts for years. Those, those, all of those circumstances can cause us to feel a similar type of hopelessness that Jonah felt, and yet he called out to the Lord and God heard his prayer. Often God does for us and what he did for Jonah. And many years later in the Apostle Paul's life, we see this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction or our distress, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. We see often that God allows us to, uh, God leads us, to those places in our lives so that we will realize how much we depend on him and how much he needs him. God is a God, though, whose presence makes life worth living. 
and changes everything. Uh, We see also a second reason why we are to call out to God in prayer and worship and commitment. And that's because the Lord is a God who raises the dead. The Lord is a God who raises the dead. So he, he hears the distressed and dying and he raises the dead. So this is one step beyond what we see. First of all, he says at the end of verse six, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Now for Jonah, again, this was this was a, a metaphorical thing that though he was not yet literally dead, his heart, as far as we can see, had not stopped beating Uh, yet he was as good as dead. We might say he had one foot in the grave, and yet God brought him back from that. We see the same sentiment again in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 16, I believe, makes this uh, most clear, where it says about um, Sheol, Psalm 16, verse 11, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Death in Scripture, and I think in our personal experience, is like an invasion, isn't it? We're, we, we have plans for our lives. We have plans for the lives of those around them. And yet, whenever death is involved, it's like something is entering in our life, invading our life, and scrambling everything, and messing up everything. Even, even you know, we think, okay, best case scenario, people say at the end of my life, well, he, he was old and full of good days, or something like that. But even, even that, most of the time, there's a, there's a difficult process even leading up to that. You, you told me that story three times already today. It could be a, a mental thing. It could be a physical thing, the losing certain abilities. Uh, if we think, not best case scenario, but a little, little earlier on, a, a diagnosis. When we have, this, we have this plan, and then we receive a a diagnosis that is, 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 again, like an invader, ruining everything for us. Um, and then more abruptly, accidents, car wrecks. Um, all of those things reflect our experience that death is an invasion. The same is true in Scripture. Death is not, in Scripture, death is not natural. It's not a part of life. It is an invasion in God's creation, at least human death is. And yet, God is a God who drives out that invader. The God that we meet together to worship on the first day of the week today uh, is a God who defeated that invader and who will defeat that invader. Um, Death had overcome Jonah and the Lord overcame death. And he will overcome that. Um, as As we think about Jonah's life, um, we see that Jonah is, Jonah is prefiguring the one who is to come, that is Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 38, some of the enemies of the Lord um, challenged him. You're really who you say you are? Give us proof. We want, we want proof that you are who you say you are. And he, he um, responds in verse 39, but he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh 
will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah points us ultimately to Jesus Christ, who not only metaphorically overcame death, but literally overcame death as a first fruits, as a, as a testimony of what God will do for all of his children at the resurrection, at the coming of Jesus Christ, the retur- his, his return. Um, and when we think of Jonah, Jonah refused to speak the word of the God to the people of Nineveh and, and was going to die for his rebellion, was really willing to die for his rebellion. Um, Jesus was willing to speak and even be the word of God and yet was willing to die not for his own rebellion, but for our rebellion. And so as we think about Jonah and God delivering him from death, it points us forward to Jesus Christ. And since Jesus Christ uh, has shown that God has overcome that invader and will overcome that invader, it gives us all the more reason to pray and to worship and to commit ourselves to him. And then nextly, we see that God is the only God who saves us from death. He is the only God who saves us from death. We see this in verse 8. There's an emphasis throughout Scripture that the other gods are insufficient. So in chapter 1, as Aaron mentioned last week, the gods of the sailors were insufficient to calm the storm. It was only the true God who could calm the storm. We also see that in the ministry of Jesus as well, that he was the only one who could calm the storm. We see in chapter 2, Jonah say in verse Eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, if you forsake God, there's no other way to receive that eternal steadfast love. Uh, and he, he says at the end of verse 9, uh, after he says, what I have vowed I will pay, salvation, he says, belongs to the Lord. In other words, the Lord is the only one who could save him from death and from his own rebellion as well. Um, and that gives us all the more reason to, to praise Him and to, to, to worship Him, to call out to Him in prayer, whatever our circumstances are, and also to commit ourselves. So the question for us to ask, for us to ask, is as we think about Jonah's salvation, and for us, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, through repentance of our sins, that is turning away from a life outside of Christ to Christ, how do our lives reflect gratitude toward God. As Jonah had promised as he, as he was singing, as he was praying in the belly of this creature um, about giving thanks to God, do our lives reflect his salvation as well? Um, how do our lives reflect gratitude toward him? Also, do our lives reflect God's grace? And this is a thing that we're going to see in Jonah as well. He's exuberant that God has saved him. Um, but will he reflect that same character trait to others as well? And for him, there, there's a disconnect. Again, we'll see in future weeks. And the challenge for us is, if we believe that God has been gracious to us, that he saved us, though we have deserved death as well, do we reflect the same love and compassion and grace and kindness to others as well? Lastly, as we think about this, this prayer, it's, it's important for us to remember that this prayer is a, is a poem. It was meant, you know, you, you can look through here and you see 
images of the sea being at the roots of the mountains, the seaweed and things like that. But as, as I've tried to point out in other places of Scripture, you see the same language metaphorically. So this, this language could apply to many people beyond Jonah. And again, it's poetic. It's, it's supposed to be memorized or easily remembered. And this poem um, is also it's strikingly unoriginal. Uh, as, you, as you read these, as I mentioned a while ago, you know, I called out to the Lord, verse 2, out of my distress. You see that same language in many of the Psalms. So, you know, a couple of things could have happened. Um, maybe for the Psalms that were written before Jonah's time, perhaps he had remembered and sung those Psalms so much that when he wanted to cry out to God, he already had the language to do that. Uh, on the other hand, many of the Psalms, perhaps, knew this prayer of Jonah. And perhaps they used, the psalmists later, used the language of Jonah to, to craft songs and psalms of their own. Um, there, are, there are at least two ways for us as we think about this, the importance of this in our own lives. Um, first of all, we, we can think this gives us reason to read and memorize Scripture, to put Scripture into our heart so that as we... As we face experiences in life, we have words, um, so to speak, to, to call out to God, to come to him with confidence. Um, uh, but there's another, another way I think that this applies to the Christian church. Um, and I, I, before I say this, I think it's important to, to remember that there is a time and place to just pour out your heart before the Lord. And not really think about language. We see Hannah doing that in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She poured out her heart to the Lord. We also see Paul talking about how when we don't know what to say, and we have uh, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So there's a place um, to just pour out your heart to the Lord and know that if you're not praying, perhaps the, uh, the best thing to pray for, God understands. And he's gracious to us. And so there, there is a place for that. But we see through, through reading this chapter that both poets and musicians have an essential role in the church. And we non-poets and non-musicians desperately need our sisters and our brothers that God is gifted with the ability of language and the, the ability uh, of music um, to enable us and help us to, as Colossians says, Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell richly, that is the message of the gospel, to dwell richly in our hearts through memorable or memorizable language. Uh, we, need, we need poets to utilize the language of our own, our own language, the tools of the English language, to help us to hide God's word in our hearts, in his truth in our hearts. Uh, just as Jonah used the tools of the Hebrew language to, uh, to allow him to compose this prayer that others could use as they call out to God in their distress. We need musicians as well, as, as this is so connected to the Psalms, to utilize the tools of melody and harmony in formulating these words through appropriate sounds to express what we feel. And there's a deep human need for this. If you, um, 
if you hang out with teenagers like I do, uh, unless, there, unless there is an explicit command for them not to have earbuds in their ears, uh, it's going to be more common than not for them to have earbuds in their ears because they want something that expresses who they are. Well, Scripture gives us that example as well. We need words to articulate and express to the Lord what we think we mean. Um, one of my favorite lines of, of any novel comes from the end of the novel uh, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. It's about a, it's about a princess who is extremely, um, her, 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 there's something wrong with her face. And, um, and she has a beautiful sister whom she loves deeply. And the, the beautiful sister is, is taken away. And she's angry. The, 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 the one who has something wrong with her face is, is furious with the gods. It's said in a pagan past. Uh, who she later learns is God, uh, for taking away her, her sister. And, and she lived her life angry and, and resentful. And then at the end of her life, she thinks about what had been going on in her life. And she thinks about her teacher, a, a Greek teacher when she was younger, um, and what he said about language. And she says, lightly men talk of saying what they mean. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox, that is her teacher, would say, child, to say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words, a glib saying, she says. When the time comes to you <clears throat> at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which is lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you'll not talk about the joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? We need our brothers and sisters who are gifted with words, gifted with music, as we seek to relate and, and bring our prayers before a holy God. Now, again, don't get me wrong. There, uh, there is a time for pouring out your heart before the Lord. But if you're like me, sometimes you come to the Lord in prayer, then you look a little bit later and you think, you, you think to yourself, I've spent the last um, 10 minutes narcissistically grunting. We need, we need the words of others as we relate to God. And there are so many times in my own life where through, through reading, it, whether the Psalms or the prayers of others, pray those things and you think, that's what I want to pray. That's the word that I needed. And God uses um, others to do that. So we're called to be people who pray to him. We're called to be people who worship him. We're called to be people who offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Why? Because he's a God who hears the distressed and dying. Why? Because he's a God who raises the dead. Why? Because he's the only God who saves. And he's shown that through his son, Jesus Christ, who loved us, died for our sins according to the scriptures, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and has promised to return. Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord, I praise you now that you are a God who hears the distressed and dying. I praise you that you are a God who raises the dead. I praise, it, praise you that you are the only one who can save us from our sins and save us from eternal death. May we be a people who call out to you, who worship you, and commit ourselves to you by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.